0: This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. So a few years ago, I was at a conference and I noticed a friend uh, sitting across the room. So I went over and sat by him and he was sitting with another guy who I'd never met. And so I introduced myself. I said, hi, I'm Isaac. What's your story? And he said, well, if you want to know my story, you can read about it in a book. And I kind of paused for a minute. I didn't know if he was joking. And my friend said, no, it's true. The well-known author, Harvey P. Carr, the author of American Splendor, um, wrote a book about Michael Malice. This is Michael Malice. And the book is called Ego and Hubris. And I said, "Are, are you serious? And he said, yeah, absolutely. And I said, well, give me a synopsis. What's the book about? And Michael said, with a complete straight face... It's about a boy who thought he was always right and grew up to
1: discover that he was.
0: (laughs) So, Michael Malice, welcome to the show.
1: You got a few things wrong there.
0: Did I? Oh, I was trying so hard. First of all,
1: all, it's about a boy who thought he was better than everyone and was. Ah. Second of all, what you don't remember is Carl introduced us and sat back waiting with popcorn, imaginary popcorn, thinking there was going to be... Uh, drama, and you said, oh, malice as in malice, and I said, Morehouse as in whorehouse, uh, <laughs> and we took, here's the thing, though, Isaac, you are so preppy that I didn't realize that you were, like, on the right side about everything, <laughs> so I just assumed, oh, because my high, my college Bucknell was very, very preppy, and I hated it. Um, so when I see someone who looks like that automatically assume they're the worst. I love and... it. I love it
0: that you call me preppy because my, a couple guys that I work with are always making fun of me for wearing like old, like clothes that aren't fashionable or whatever. So now I'm going to tell them Michael Malice said that I'm preppy.
1: You, you, you don't think you've got that like Ken doll kind of vibe going?
0: You know, I kind of have like the hair that sort of flips up or whatever, but You're smiling. Th- well, that's okay. So that was the other thing I was going to say. So, you know, we met then and despite, um, Maybe your initial misgivings. We,
1: we, we, <laughs> no, I was not for blood. I wasn't misgivings. I was ready for carnage.
0: <laughs> we we interacted over social media and things over the next couple of years, and um, we did a conference together, a, a fee seminar together, where we were both faculty, and we were eating lunch, and you said to me, you just stopped and said, "Are you always this sunny?" I don't remember that, but I'm sure I did You said, what do you like when you're angry? And I thought, man, do I really come off that way? So, I don't know, I guess I'm a a relentless optimist Did you consider yourself a pessimist or just a a cynic, a misanthrope?
1: Uh, I don't think I'd ascribe to any of those words I think that the world needs Superman and it needs Batman And it needs someone who is going to be out at night Beating up uh, the bad people To make sure that those few sparks of light uh, can be maintained. So that's how I see myself. I, I don't, I, I wouldn't, you know, and you're Superman and that's fine. You can go, you know, put on your glasses and protect <laughs> you just like everybody else. But for those of us billionaires who achieved physical perfection, uh, we've taken a different path.
0: Yeah. Good. Well, good for you. So, okay, let's talk about, um, briefly, and this will be a good way to kind of get into your, your story a little bit. This book, Ego and Hubris, which, by the way, is hilarious, entertaining. It's, it's wonderful um, by Harvey Pekar. How did you end up getting Harvey Pekar to write a book about you? Or how did he end up deciding that he wanted to do this? What's the story?
1: Well, uh, I did a screenplay about this band from the 80s that never got produced. And the keyboard player for the band did the animation for Harvey's film, American Splendor. And the producer of the film sent out an email to everyone in his production company that said, Harvey's in town with nothing to do. If you want to hang out with him, now's your chance. And I'm the only one who took him up on this. Uh, And we hit it off royally right away. And at first he wanted to write a book contrasting his family's experience coming over from Eastern Europe in the early 20th century with my families, which was, you know, he felt indicative of the second wave, which came over late 70s, early 80s. But the more that he learned about me and discovered that as he puts it on the cover that I'm a piece of work, uh, the more the book just became the Michael Mello story. <laughs> and
0: so in the book, and it's been a while since I've read it, but I, I remember, if, if I'm remembering correctly, after college, you kind of You kind of tried the corporate world uh, in a a couple variations, working for some corporations, some tent agencies, doing consulting. Yeah, and like, what what made you? How did you transition from that into writing?
1: Uh, It was very difficult. Um, I wasn't a struggling artist in the sense that, like, I was making good money in working at Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan, hating it. You know, hating all the people I was with. Well, not all, but a lot of them. Hating the culture, uh, knowing. You know, I felt like a prisoner in many ways, even though the, the, the prison bars were gilded, so to speak. So it, it's, it's just a matter of um, if you're going to play roulette, at some point your number is going to hit. So whenever people ask me for advice, for me, I think it's just a numbers game and perseverance. You keep knocking on doors. Eventually one of them is going to open. Uh, and that's what ended up happening.
0: So, okay. So now you are, I guess I should have set this up better at the beginning to, to say what it is that you do now. Now you're a writer, a professional writer. That's your, uh, obviously an interest, but it's also your, your career, how you make a living. Had you always, while you were working at, at Goldman in these various places, were you, were you interested in writing? Were you always writing on the no. side? Or no, no interest
1: in writing still not that much interest in writing. My, I had several goals. One is not to have an alarm clock, uh, two, to set my own schedule Uh, And never have to, three, never have to make small talk. And four, never have to interact with people I don't want to. Um, Those are
0: excellent goals.
1: Those are my goals. So, writing was a means to that end. Uh, I don't think I'm a particularly amazing writer, but I don't have to be amazing. I just have to be competent and I have to be able to make rent.
0: So you, so you wouldn't buy the sort of uh, follow your bliss or pursue your passion argument. You would say, "Look, those
1: are my passions." My okay, passions so okay, so not having to talk to people. Gotcha.
0: So the skill of writing is something you developed because it was the the best way that you have thus far discovered to achieve those those goals.
1: And to be in my underwear as much as possible. Yes.
0: Um, we're doing this over Skype and you're in Brooklyn, so I'm not gonna ask right now uh whether or not that's the case. The it camera's the turned case. off.
1: <laughs> and they're gingham too.
0: <laughs> yeah, I have noticed, maybe we'll get to that later. You you're kind of a—I don't know—I don't want to call you a fashionista, but <laughs> I, I'm always—I'm always afraid I'll offend you if I, you know, put you in the wrong category. You cannot
1: but... offend me. There's literally <laughs> nothing you can say that will—you personally, I mean—that would offend me. Honestly.
0: Good. Good. Okay. Well, actually, um,
1: that's not true. That sounds like a challenge. If someone told that to me, that would be a challenge. Separate.
0: Well, I—I I am. I just noticed that I was like subconsciously rubbing my hands together after I said <laughs> "good, good," and then I looked. It felt kind of strange. So. So you hadn't been doing any writing. I mean, figuring out that writing was the path to being in your underwear all the time. Did that happen quickly? I mean, what was your first like paid writing gig and how did that happen?
1: It didn't happen quickly. Uh, I I started, you know, the first thing I tried to do was stand up. And I realized that this is something that takes a lot of time in the evenings. It's very, very hard to have a day job and do stand up. Um, and it's, it's something that even if I made it as a standup, I'd still have to be traveling a lot, uh, which eliminates the, you know, being a shut in. So that was a problem. So writing kind of breaking, I had a, you know, a website, uh, that kind of went big and, and the, the Harvey thing of course was a big kind of credential.
0: The website Probably was overheard in New York.
1: Yeah, but we don't talk about that. Oh, we don't. Um, okay. Yeah. So, uh, for legal reasons. Um, but the, the Harvey was a big. The Harvey Picard thing was a big calling card because Harvey has a lot of cred in, you know, the entertainment industry. So when he writes a book for the first time about somebody else, you know, that – you know, is kind of the best door knocker you could think of. So I had an, there was an editor who had a book proposal of mine, which didn't go anywhere, but he needed a co-author for a project and that fell through too. And then he offered me what became my first co-authoring book, which was made in America with ultimate fighting champion, Matt Hughes, which was a, which was a New York times bestseller. And I'm very proud of that book.
0: So so you call. so is it I was going to say you're a ghost writer, but that's not correct. You call it a co-author in these books.
1: If you Are... want to be completely pedantic and, and, and a complete douche, which I like to be sometimes technically, since my name's on all the covers, I'm not a ghost writer. Gotcha.
0: Okay. So now you've done what four or five of these um, books with celebrities um, where it's essentially their story and you're, you know, helping them, helping them tell it. What, what's that like? I mean, what's the p- actual process like? Is it, you're getting on the phone and having lengthy conversations, and then writing it all out. Or are you getting outlines or written things, well, or how's
1: it work? I, I, you can't 100% get into how it works for okay. obvious reasons. <laughs> but here's how it here's how people have it wrong. People have this idea. That when you're working in a book with a celebrity, like, I'm doing everything myself and and they are just signing off on it or, like, they don't even see it. And it's really not true. The best way to think of – if I'm a talented athlete or a musician or, you know, businessman, writing is a technical skill. Like, you're not going to – be a businessman and then, you know, not hire a plumber to fix your toilet or not hire a chef to cater your meal, even if you do know how to do these things. Right. Mm -hmm. So writing takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of skill. So the best way to think of a co-author is kind of like a defense attorney. Like he prepares you when you're going to go to court to have your story presented coherently and clearly and engagingly. So it's it's just really the technical skill of writing uh, that you're bringing to the table. And it really is their book in every way, except for when they're written poorly. You know, a lot of times like I'll never like George W. Bush's book, Decision Points, I read two pages. And, you know, it's written this very poetic, beautiful language. And we know how President Bush speaks. And this isn't even <laughs> – but that's not even a knock against him. I think books should be conversational because you want to feel like I'm, holy crap, I'm sitting here talking to George Bush and I'm really getting his perspective across. That's the goal. One of the best reviews I've ever gotten in my life was a very negative review. Uh, which is of the first D.L. Hughley book, who's a comedian. And the reviewer on Amazon said, this book sounds exactly like how he talks. Wow. It's as if he sat down with a tape recorder. And I'm like, you, thank you, you crazy lady. Like, do you know how hard it is to, to replicate a stand-up comedian's cadence and speech in literary form? It's almost impossible. So it was just very amazing uh, what some people uh, don't understand.
0: So, so I imagine in that business, and correct me if I'm wrong, there's there's probably, and I don't know how many – a lot of sort of known co-authors, where if you're a celebrity or a business person uh looking to have somebody help you write a book, there's like a, I don't know, maybe a known pool to draw from. And some of those people, or maybe this is wrong. I, I would guess some of them don't work so much to write it in the voice of the person that the book is about, and they kind of have their own voice and their own style. Are there other differing approaches, differing schools, or is your approach of trying to make it sound as much like the person you're working with the common one?
1: I don't know if it's the common one, but I'm, I'm certain it's the correct one. <laughs> uh, and, I'll, and I and I I know it's not the common one because a lot of times I'll read a book and, and I'll just absolutely hate it uh, for this very reason. And like, here's a good example. Because um, People, I think, co-authors often try to make the book sound literary even when the person is not a literary figure. And when I was doing the, you know, the Matt Hughes book, and we're talking about his testimony of how he found God, you know, the copy editor went in and and when when Matt's talking about Christ and God, he's using he, he capital H capital H for him. And they changed it all to lowercase, and I'm just like, oh I no! Just,
0: I grew up evangelical.
1: That, any, not, any
0: Christian would capitalize those. Of
1: course. <laughs> and you don't. And if if you saw that I'm doing this consistently, clearly it's there for a reason, and I my just jaw dropped. So I think a lot of times people, when they're trying to write someone, is help someone write their book, they try to make it quote unquote correct, but that is absolutely incorrect. Because a celebrity's not trying to write, you know, War and Peace. Hmm. That's exactly inappropriate. Maybe this is my Warhol background coming through, but I, I find it absolutely the wrong decision.
0: So do you ever feel like... Um, so, so you kind of see this as just a, a special skill you've mastered to to write in other people's voices, but you also write in your own voice. Uh, I know you do pieces for Thought Catalog and different outlets. Yeah. Do you prefer one over the other?
1: I prefer... Not writing. Uh, Dorothy <laughs> Parker said, "I hate writing. I love having written." Uh, I I think I'm much better running my mouth than I am running a keyboard. Um, so
0: so you don't enjoy the process itself when you're sitting at you don't you don't enter into like the the flow state that everybody talks about and just get in the zone and really enjoy
1: it. I do, but I always I mean that's less than 100% of the time. But when I'm on TV, you know, being A complete a-hole that's (laughs) transcendent to me
0: okay so let's talk about TV so you um, you frequently appear on all kinds of different shows you're on the the Kennedy show Um, you've been on at least a couple times in the last I don't know a couple weeks anyway and I know you've been on a number of other shows Uh, you were on a show with Carson Daly some time ago how did that start? Was it purely to talk about the books you had done or how, what, what gave you your in? And then, you know, once you're in, are you just sort of in and you keep getting invited back? How's it work?
1: Well, well, I mean, the, the first in was talking about my last book, uh, Dear Reader. And then, you know, they just said, hey, this guy, I like the cut of this guy's jib. Let me let's give him a chance on a panel And then it's like, oh, this is like a fish to water. This guy knows uh, how this process works. And I I mean, it's just I'm the second funniest guy in the liberty movement. So, of course, they're going to (laughs) keep.
0: So so when you're on TV, do you see it as, look, my job is to be entertaining. So I got to give the people what they want. Or do you see it as I don't care what anybody wants. I'm going to do what I want to do. Or is it just is are both the same thing.
1: They're not the same thing at all. I don't care what the people want. That's number one. Okay, but it's I'm not. It's not the Michael Malice show. It's Kennedy. So I am there to be entertaining, giving the parameters of her show, and I'm not there to upstage her. Not that I could. I mean, she's brilliant and quick, and and you know one of the fastest minds I've ever seen. But you're there under certain understood parameters. Like if someone else is on the panel and they're not being funny, I'm not going to be you know kind of taking jabs at them. That happened once, but I I mean so. I, I'm not there to overshadow the other people. So it's really, uh, you know, there is this a lot of, you know, background and um, uh, programming going on that I think most people aren't aware of, but a good person will be aware of.
0: So I don't know if you're allowed to answer this either, but I'm always curious with people that make frequent appearances on these sort of panels and things. Are these paid appearances or do you do it just for the pub? Are you
1: asking me how much money I make? Isaac no, I just, has... I want to know just
0: in the realm of TV. Just <laughs> in the realm of TV. Isaac. <laughs>
1: What's the next question?
0: <laughs> okay, okay. Um, well, this one connects to money it's not as universal. well,
1: but let's put, I'll just answer it that way. It's not universal.
0: Okay. I kind of assume that, you know, for most people, especially if they, if they write and do other things, if, if being a public figure is good for their brand that, um, you know, they do it anyway, whether or not they were paid. I was just curious if that's a, a practice. Um, okay. So your, your book that you mentioned that got you started on TV, uh, dear reader, Yeah. this book is. In many ways, the same type as the uh, the books you've written with some of these celebrities. But in some ways, it's very different. This is the unauthorized biography.
1: Autobiography.
0: Autobiography
1: of... Damn it, Isaac, you had one job.
0: Uh, well, I'm actually holding the cover and looking at it Well, then, right do you now. not know how to read? <laughs> I've, it's a confession I've never wanted to make. Um, <laughs> I'll get you the Braille version. <laughs> the, the, the Autobiography of Kim Jong-il uh, the, you know, infamous North Korean dictator. And it has right on the front, 100% true. So we know it's true.
1: And true Uh, is in quotes.
0: Yes. True is in quotes. So this is your, okay. I don't want to say satire because I've heard you, uh, correct people. Oh
1: my God. How would you, okay.
0: Yeah. Well, I want to talk about that. How would you categorize this book?
1: Uh, have you read it yet?
0: I've read like the first 20% of it, probably, and I never finished it. I haven't, I just, I found it for this interview and I was like, crap, I need to finish this book. Why, Why
1: would you admit to that?
0: Well, I want to be why? honest here. I don't want to pretend like I have read it. And what if you, I'd rather what if you ask me? Dishonest. What if you're like, hey, what about the story? You know, why
1: would I be asking you about these stories when I wrote them?
0: I don't know. I just I, I don't want Ugh. to, be, you know, caught off guard. So, oh,
1: my God, that is not a preppy answer. Isaac. <laughs> See, maybe I'm not preppy. You answer. need to read your Carnegie again and again. <laughs> so uh, briefly, uh, the book is written in the same style as any celebrity autobiography you're going to find, um, whether it's you know I don't know Lindsay Lohan or Joan Collins or, or you know uh, you know some football player. Um, and this book, it's a first-person account of the life and history, the life of Kim Jong Il and the history of North Korea. So the question of whether it's a satire, I have done everything in my power to fight it being a satire for this reason. I did not play up any of the insanity. I did not, you know, make it more ridiculous than it was. I played it as straight as possible because I want that reader when they're reading this book to be like, Holy crap, this is what they actually say and believe. So, they don't have to wonder what am, what is Michael Malice adding to make it crazier. Michael Malice downplayed the craziness as much as possible and gave it as much coherence as possible, which is a ghost raider's job.
0: So everything that's in this book, all of the stories and, and facts mentioned about Kim Jong-il, those come from... Actual or, publications um, and sort yes, of well-known circulated source. stories.
1: Right, which is why on the cover it says 100% true and is in quotes. <laughs> it's 100% what is presented as true. So if you're going to categorize it, I always call, categorize it as a farce because it is so absurd in its nature. But any satirical el- – like I think people have this idea that if you have politics and you add humor that, that translates to satire, that's not what satire is. I'm not um, – you know. Kind of exaggerating and caricaturing uh, what's presented as fact. I am, you know, de charactering right. caricaturing as much as possible, making it seem sane as much as possible. And when you downplay all the craziness, and it's still that crazy, it's even more horrifying. So I if feel.
0: you if you were to to you know come into the world with no knowledge of anything else and only know what the propaganda machine in North Korea provides. This is the factual account that you would write of this person's yes. life. That's so exactly. you visited North Korea to, to gather uh, information and all kinds of pamphlets and publications uh, doing the research for this book. Yeah. What was that like and how were you able to visit? I'm not sure like the rules and, and what it's, it's like to visit.
1: It's, it's illegal uh to go for americans i like it already i'm intrigued perfectly safe in fact if you go there and you murder someone there will be no consequences for you because human life is of no value in north korea and you are there as a guest of the state so you have carte blanche to do whatever you want the worst thing that'll happen to you is, is if you're deported um, so you, it's really the opposite of what people think you are much more important to them with your American dollars than any of the people who are, you know, prisoners and captives. Of wow.
0: That. Well, so it's illegal. The U S makes it illegal for
1: you to go. No, it's legal. It's perfectly legal. Oh, it, oh I thought you said it's illegal. No, okay. it is legal. It's it perfectly is perfectly legal. legal go. Okay. gotcha. Um, I- you, and so
0: are you are you guided the whole time by some state yeah, so appointee? so people
1: think it's it, – you have guides with you. You have two guides, a male and a female, and they watch each other, and people think this sounds so ominous. They're not going through your toilet bowl, okay? They're not even allowed on your floor in the hotel because the floors are segregated by nationality. So they're,
0: they're less invasive than the TSA.
1: Correct. <laughs> and the other thing is um, – and more polite uh, and more amiable – the other thing is this. Um, when you go to many countries, if I went to, to London and I went on a tour with a tour guide, what would be weird about that? So yeah, they're showing you around to certain places and everything's, you know, kind of set up, but it's not like they aren't getting drunk and talking to you. Uh, and it's not like they're robots. They're human beings who have got a very, very you know, job that's very, very respected, that makes them very wealthy. And they know, you know, uh, who butters their bread, so to speak? So they're great pe- people, these guys, and that makes it even more pernicious that you know s- there's so much humanity in North Korea despite uh, this dictatorship.
0: So, I mean, what what was it like visiting? Is it fun? Are there like enjoyable, nice places to visit?
1: It, it's, it's if you're a nerd like I am, I can't recommend it enough and it's impossible to describe what it's like I, the way i described it when i wrote a, i wrote a reason article about it was it's like going to another planet back in time because not only is everything dated, everything is foreign and insane, and has been consciously put there for a purpose, you know, it's not like this building just sprung out of the earth, so everywhere you look it's just like, what am I looking at and how, and you're trying to kind of port it to your own experiences and make sense of it, but it's not always easy to do, and it's just absolutely fascinating, and you're talking to people and figuring out, like, what do they know, what do they not know, what are they thinking, you know, they have to play their cards very, very, very close to their chest lest they and their families be kind of executed. So it's, it's absolutely, there's not one second you're not going to be fascinated by what's going on.
0: You know, I saw a, uh, an article, I, I didn't get a chance to read it. Somebody tweeted it or something, um, just the other day that said something to the effect of North Korea is the largest cult in history. And the, the implication being that unlike many really closed, you know, sort of dictatorial countries or some of the the former Soviet, um, countries, That, again, this may be untrue, but that most of the people in North Korea actually believe in all this stuff and believe that like like a cult member, like you kind of have to like deprogram them to even make them aware of what they're missing out on. What would you say to that? Would you say that's a somewhat accurate characterization?
1: Um it's a little inaccurate and here's why when you're in an actual cult right that's a sub that's a very very small subset of your larger society right if i join if i join jonestown or waco you know i'm in this little compound it's us versus the world kind of thing and i guess you can extrapolate that to an entire nation but the degrees of belief in North Korea, you know, are are not universal at all. Just like in any population, you're going to have a you know a statistical distribution. Um, I I think so. They they are a cult in this sense. Even people who escape still believe that the great leader, the founder of North Korea, Kim Il Sung, is the greatest man who ever lived, and that everything he can do is amazing. And maybe they'll come to understand that he couldn't literally walk on water like they claimed, but that still you know, he's the one who, you know, had these monumental achievements. Uh, and, And there's some reason for them to believe this, because to his credit, North Korea is the last one standing. You know, USSR fell away. All of Eastern Europe fell away. They're the last ones with Stalinism. So they, in a sense, did it right where everyone else did it wrong. And by doing it right, it means concentration camps and allowing your population to starve and having absolutely no sense of humanity. But if that's your goal, they did it. Uh, So when people say that they're crazy uh, and and they're unstable, it's like they're the most stable of all these countries, Mm. and if they're crazy, why have they been so successful at putting their plan into purpose? Ayn Rand once said "You know, errors of this magnitude are never made innocently, and one of the things I map out in Dear Reader as Kim Jong-il lays out his life story in The Shadow of His Father is just how they constructed – this absolute massive totalitarian edifice. It didn't happen overnight. This was a decades long scheme by the Kim regime to have absolute control of that country.
0: Wow. Um, all right. Give me, give me like two or three of the craziest, uh, quote, facts about 100% true facts about Kim Jong il that you discovered in, in doing the
1: research. Well, I, I mean, I think people tend to think of uh, Kim Jong il in this kind of Chuck Norris sense. That Kim Jong-il doesn't do push-ups, he pushes the earth away from his body, that kind of thing. And that's not really the analog. The analog is Kim Jong-il is the – and now it's going to be Kim Jong-un – is the only competent person in the entire country. So the stories, which I had to read in the original communist propaganda, which are so mind-numbing, are things like there's a factory. This This is a very famous story. There's a factory and things aren't going well at the factory because of some lathe. And no one knows what to do. And Kim Jong-il shows up. And then he looks at the girl's lathe and he sees that there's a tiny little hole that was caked with something. And once that hole was unplugged, everything went smoothly. And but for Kim Jong-il, you know, we wouldn't be producing all this stuff. So that th- those very famous shots we see of Kim Jong-il looking at things and Kim Jong-un now, you know, they call that field guidance, and it's this idea that if he's not constantly putting out fires, everything's going to go to hell in the whole country. What's, so,
0: yeah, what's scary about that is uh, it's not too far off in some ways to the way that a lot of people view uh, government as a whole or certain politicians in almost any country. And, and I think that the fact that uh, apparently – I've heard people claim that that some people have read Dear Reader and thought that this was – Like true without quotes. And to me, if that's the case, that's so frightening that people here, just like people in North Korea, are so able and willing to believe. That, like, you need, you know, the great leader to come and tell all the hapless people what to do all the time.
1: Well, no, I, I think you're referring to that one post Brian put up where, like, a, a fifth grader read the book and became a fan of Kim Jong-il. Yeah, yeah. And, and, I, was, I,
0: mean, but, I was finding this really hard to believe. But especially yes.
1: if you, if there's no possibility that anyone reading this book in its entirety uh, who's <laughs> over the age of 12 is going to have a positive uh, appraisal <laughs> of North Korea. That was my goal. My okay. goal was to explain it and make it coherent. Uh, but, in you know, when you read here's – a, here's, a, here's a story of how I made it coherent and, and, and entertaining and at the same time put forth their message. So uh, I think it was in the early 50s, early 60s. I don't remember. Um, at one point, they decided all foreign literature was going to be destroyed in the whole country, um, including Marx. Uh, so there's going to be a few books that are in the library, but if you want to go to that library, you've got to write down your name so they keep track. All foreign – publications were destroyed nationwide, right? This massive censorship because the idea is if it's not from Koreans and if it's not from the great leader, we don't need to know this. This is something that's almost impossible for us to wrap our heads around, thank God. And the way I have Kim Jong-il explain in the book, he goes, look, uh, you don't keep old food in your cupboards, right? You don't open it up and have old oranges. These ideas have been outdated by Kim Il-sung's The Great Leader's Juche idea, so we don't need them anymore. And if anything, they're just going to rot our brains. So this is a great thing. This isn't censorship. This is liberating the mind. So that's constantly how I have him talking because they are very boastful about what they do. They're not ashamed that the, you know that they have the system this is their pride and joy and, and they regard it as like the light of freedom you know against this the yellow toxic winds of capitalism
0: so if you're not horrified by this book you're a horrible person
1: <laughs> dumb so you this book was um
0: self-published right you went to a couple publishers and nobody wanted to pick it up
1: they, they didn't, couldn't wrap their heads around it because when you, publishing is going the way I, 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 Isaac, I'm sure you remember when we had CD stores. Oh, yeah. We were dating ourselves, and you go to Sam Goody's or The Wiz or whatever, the Coconuts or whatever the chain was, and you look through those long boxes, and you come home, rip them out, and take out the CDs, and now CD stores don't exist, and yet somehow there's more music than ever. And bookstores and publishing is going that way, which is when you write a book, you flip over the book, and you look at the upper left back cover, there's going to be a little category to put it in, humor, biography, current events, you know, self-help. But when you invent a new genre like I have, I mean, are you going to put this under history? Are you going to put this under autobiography? Are you going to put it under humor? Uh, People didn't know what to make of it. And I said, uh, to heck with this. I've written many books. I know the process. Um, I don't need, you know, editors to give me headaches and and not understand it. Uh, So let me let the market speak. So I did a Kickstarter and I raised 30 grand, which and, you know, I produced it and I could not be happier.
0: That was um, that was really cool to see. I remember when you launched that that Kickstarter and that was, uh, I mean, looking at the book. And it was
1: filmed at the fee mansion, you know.
0: Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's great. Oh, what a great place. I absolutely love uh, visiting that that place. Um,
1: I mean, well, this book this,
0: this book was a lot of work. So was the Kickstarter just to essentially pay for your cost of living and the associated cost with publishing the books? Because when you look at the book and the amount of work that must have gone into it, um, you know, thirty thousand seems like a heck of a deal. Killed,
1: this book almost killed me. Really? Because I had to read sixty, six, zero books as research. I wanted this to be the only book you would ever need to read about North Korea to understand and completely know everything. So I didn't want to leave any stone unturned. So not only did I read all their books, which made me want to jump off a bridge, I read all the Western books as well. And then I had to adapt it and I had to write make North Korea entertaining and fun. And at the same time, let the horror seep through. So this was very, 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 very challenging. Uh, but the Kickstarter, a, did pay the rent. But it's also for me proof of concept that yeah. there's market demand, and and C, it's also not bad to demonstrate that you know you can take a concept from you know idea to production. That's a great thing to establish publicly for anyone.
0: How did you choose the, the subject matter? Have you been fascinated by North Korea for a while? Or- I had
1: not. I was actually working on a project that never came to fruition. And my friend Justin Esch, who created Bacon Salt and Bacon A's and Bacon coffin, Coffins and Bacon Lube, uh, he, he just took me to his house for a barbecue. And he gave me the idea. He said, you should do Kim Jong-il's autobiography. And what really struck me with that was this. I couldn't think of anyone who had higher name recognition, but less is known about them. That huge disparity. I'm like, okay, this is a great place on a bookshelf because no one knows anything about this guy, but everyone knows who he is. Uh, And I thought this would be a lot of fun. And the more I read about it, the more I'm like, everyone has this completely wrong um, and I'm going to do something about it.
0: So crowdfunding is, as it's gotten more popular, it's more and more competitive. How did you... How did you manage a successful crowdfunding campaign? Like, do you have any any particular keys that you think helped you raise the money?
1: Yeah, have big donors lined up before you launch, and, <laughs> and have them queued up if you need to pull triggers. That was my biggest uh, piece of advice. Um, be as professional as possible. You know, I had so, I had Chuck Grimmett, formerly a Fee, film it. I had my buddy Maddox edit it. Um, so those were two. You know, tr- and people are going to be more than happy to help you. Um, if you, they see you're doing it for yourself and, and not just some kind of corporate you know, wage slave. So those were two pieces of advice. Um, but I, I don't know that I'm, I'm particularly, you know, qualified to give more advice than that.
0: Was the uh, was the whole process and publication of the book, was it worth it? You said it almost killed you
1: oh, of course it was worth it. it. This was like the great achievement of my life to, uh, to date. So I could not be more ecstatic uh, and, and happy with the results. And yeah, there's some typos in the book, but there's my they're my typos. Like one of my other books, there's a typo in, in the hardcover and we told the editor and the paperback came out and wasn't fixed. And it's like, you know what? I, I, I have such disdain often for how publishing works <laughs> that I'm perfectly happy to own my own mistakes. Yeah, so
0: um, tell me a little bit about your... I don't know if you have daily routines or habits for writing, like do you get up and, and set aside a chunk of the day to work on whatever writing project you're doing or how do you manage your, your time and, and do your, um, you know, do your work?
1: Well, I am a, a sprinter and I'm not a marathon person, which is another reason I couldn't have a nine to five. I can only work like two hours a day because I, for me, writing is very, very intense, especially when you're helping, you know, when you're working with somebody else. Um, so I'll wake up at 11 every day, uh, mess around on the internet, go out and get lunch, I'll leave the house to get lunch in the city, come back, mess around the internet again, do some reading, maybe or whatever, watching TV, four o'clock, uh, I'll write for an hour, uh, then relax, go to dinner, and then maybe I'll come back and write again, then go to the gym, and I'll be in bed at two. So that's the usual routine.
0: Wow. So what, like, how many words or pages do you get done in those one-hour chunks?
1: Three pages an hour.
0: Okay. That's, uh, that is pretty intense. That's pretty yeah.
1: intense. So that's like an article. Like I can do an article of three pages of a book. So if six pages of a book, a 300-page book could be done in 50 days, which I would never do. But I mean, and that was the great thing about knowing my pacing. I didn't have writer's block with Dear Reader because as soon as I did my three pages for the day, I allowed myself to check out because it was so intense you know, that I could just relax and not think about it. And then just knowing I had the next three pages queued up for tomorrow you edit as you write never well i mean you read that article read, yeah right?
0: yeah i was it was yeah. a softball question because i, I yeah. read
1: your thought catalog article about the, the biggest mistake i i'm glad that i realized to do is never ever ever edit as you write you do the first egg i learned that from peggy noonan in her book uh what i saw at the revolution about being reagan speechwriter. um you write it and it's going to be crap and you're going to cringe and you go back and you make it nice and then you go back and make it really pretty uh so that's my process
0: so um you have a another hobby or obsession. I don't know what to call it. You're part of you're part of a little known underground world full of all kinds of seedy characters. Pun very much intended. That is the world of succulents. You're yeah, a collector kinda, of succulents.
1: Yeah, I've got 200 species, but I'm kind of over them. You know? Are you serious? Yeah, I got everything I needed. There was this what? one plant that like strumeria where the, it has two leaves and they're circular and they're shaped like a Venn diagram, the leaves overlap and they're sticky and have a red outline. And I got them. They're from South Africa. I'm the first one in America to get them. But in, in, in the States, you don't have as much light as, you know, the African desert. So the leaves kind of stretch out and they just look like bunny ears or something. And I'm just like, ugh, you know, so that's kind of disappointing, but no, after a while, you know, you do this for a few years, it's, it's, there's only so many that you can get. Um, and I, I'm, I mean, they're all waking up now for the summer. They go dormant in the winter. Uh, but I like I like them because I think of them as a uh, uh, God's mistakes because they're all so misshapen and hideous uh, that it's kind of fun to look at them and be like, how does this thing exist?
0: And, and you you told me when we were talking um, at that that same conference that I mentioned before, we were both faculty about you've you've been to I don't know like fairs or, or plant shows conventions. Yeah, plant shows. Yeah, and there's and there's like a whole culture there. I asked you about. Uh, cacti and you said oh no 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 that's that's Ghost. like really gauche yeah, Ghost. yeah yeah um yeah yeah so you're part of this you're part of this little this little subculture i mean are you considered like you know a badass in that world
1: I got banned from one of the plant boards. <laughs> How does that happen? Because I have a plant shizobasis and it's self-fertile. So it makes little bulbs all over the place, right? And I didn't want to throw them in the garbage. I had a ton of them. And I offered it up on the site. I'm like, hey, if anyone wants to pay shipping, you could have these. They, they look pretty awesome because the leaves just look like a like a TV wire. like It's like a fractal thing. And when they have flowers, it just looks like this cloud of little flowers. It's just amazing plant um, and, and highly toxic, of course. And the guy's like, "No, this is not a commercial website. You're banned." And I'm just like, "I got banned from a succulent website, <laughs> so it, it 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 was it was very unfortunate. I guess that's a badge of honor."
0: So if you've lost, you know, like your search is over, you have all the plants you want. Are you yeah. are you moving on to some new hobby or or? You know, collectible? I did
1: last year. I moved on to like fancy denim.
0: Yeah. Okay. Got... So you are a fashionista. I have seen all these pictures on Instagram of of these like bizarre, expensive jeans and you were like doing I'm holds, so should I buy okay. these?
1: So I got these super, super fancy jeans that are dyed in Japanese mud for six months, <laughs> right? And I wore them to all the, the denim stores when I visited LA and none of the people working there commented on them. Oh. And I'm like, this is the most money down a whole thing I've ever done. So I'm done with the jeans too. Okay,
0: man, just... Your heart's been broken from one hobby to the next.
1: That's why I'm Batman and you're Superman. <laughs> so, do you have a
0: next? Um, do you have a next writing project that you yeah. have in mind that you want to do?
1: Well, I'm working on DL Hughley's second book, uh, which is called Black Man White House: uh, An Oral History of the Obama Administration.
0: Oh, very cool. Um, what about what about another uh, self-published work? You have anything in mind?
1: Uh, you, (laughs) I've got a few things in mind, but I don't, I mean, the TV stuff is going so well. I have so much more fun with it, uh, that I think once, uh, DL and I polish off this book, it's going to be kind of like reassessing and seeing where to go next. Yep. Um, there's a lot of ideas for, uh, next books, but I, I just, I, I've got so much on my plate. It's, it's kind of hard to figure out what to do.
0: Yeah. Do you, do you normally... Are you one of those people who's always looking to reduce the number of things that you're doing and like minimize how many things you're working on? Okay. So,
1: you know, being, becoming a writer was not easy, obviously. And, you know, I was a business major. I've never taken an English course and I was always obsessive about budgeting. And now to be at a point where I'm turning work down is just very foreign to my thinking. Um, so it's very, very hard for me to be like, you know, no, I have too much on my plate. I'm while I'm doing DL's book, I'm helping someone else edit theirs. So I think, okay, I could do two at once, and it was exponentially harder than doing one at a time, uh, which I'm finding out. So you know it, it's it's I'm I guess I'm learning as I go is all I could say.
0: yeah, that is, I mean, at least for me, I found the ability to say no to things, even things that are good and might be beneficial just to to really weigh the cost and say no has been one of the most valuable things. I'm still learning it, but whenever I do it, man, it just, I'm always, (laughs) I'm always so thankful. I
1: don't Um, think I ever say no. I usually either quote some obscene price or don't respond. (laughs) Um, I'm serious. Uh, I think saying no people find off putting, Um, so I tried, I mean, that's why you have agents too. Yeah. Uh, like if people want to hire me and and if I just throw out some insane number and they back away, that's fine. Um, but no, I did turn on a couple of things because of the workload.
0: Yeah. That's one thing that a lot of people don't realize. I, I used to do a lot of, uh, events, bring in different speakers at college campuses, um, back in Michigan many years ago. And some of the speakers, People will complain like, "Oh, this guy has this obscene, you know, thirty thousand dollars speaking fee, and he's already rich. And why is he doing that?" And And I think people are thinking only in terms because he of can right. Well, they're thinking only in terms of you know he doesn't need the money or you know he's wealthy. Why wouldn't he just do it? And it's not even so much about the money. I, I think in the case of many of these speakers, they donate their money anyway. It's because there's no better way to regulate, you know, your time is limited. And, and if somebody really wants you and the event's going to be really worth it and they put down 25 or 30 grand, that proves that they're going to turn out people and it's going to be worth, worth your time. It's, it's just a way to, to regulate your own, you know, the demands on your time as much as it is a way to make money. And I think that's, I think that's a really interesting insight you have there rather than just saying, no, just quote some absurd price where if they said yes, you'd be happy to do it, but (laughs) you expect that they won't. Yeah. Um, all right. What do you want people to say about you when
1: you're gone? Oh Jesus Christ! Come I'm on. not I, when I'm gone. I'm taking this planet with me. <laughs> I'm driving this train into the wall, baby. What do I want people to say about me? Oh, uh, okay, okay. I, 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 uh, I have never thought of that. I, I, don't. I don't know. I, I think. I, I think I, the fact that I have a shelf of books. Uh, kind of speaks for itself you know Uh, that's my legacy Uh, you know what people say about me that's up to them
0: my guest today has been Michael Malice you can find him at michaelmalice.com you can follow him on Twitter, Facebook Uh, he's on Kennedy frequently as I mentioned and the author of several books and hopefully several more Michael thanks for joining thanks Isaac